0: If you will turn in your Bibles and stand, um, I'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, 1 Kings 1, 5 through 10. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with fifty men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab the son of Zariah, and with Abathar the priest, and following Adonijah they helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoloth with his beside in Rogel, And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we are just so grateful for all that you um, have done for us, all that you are, God. Um, To us, we know that we live because you are life itself, and to have you is to have eternal life. We thank you for um, loving us and for the grace that you have showered upon us. We thank you for the ministry of your Spirit who teaches us and leads us into all that is true. And we pray again that we would hear his voice, Lord, and that our hearts would be drawn to you and that we would humble ourselves before you. And say yes, God, to all that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. Um, I've learned over the years, sometimes on a rare occasion I've given a Mother's Day sermon, um, as well as a Father's Day sermon. But it seems that um, the moms don't really often want a Mother's Day sermon. And those that don't have moms, it makes them, I mean, don't have, everybody has a mom. <laughs> those that don't have children, it makes them sometimes feel bad. So um, no Mother's Day sermon. But this is a sermon about um, family in a bit, and, and, and it certainly applies to raising our kids. Um, you recall that David is 70 years old, and he's, a, he's approaching death. He knows that. Everybody now knows that. They tried to um, ascertain whether David still has the physical strength to be king, and they've come to the conclusion that he does not. And so now Adonijah, who is the oldest surviving son of David, has said, this is my chance to be king. There were older sons in the family, but they've all died. Adonijah was number four, and it appears that he is the oldest now, of those four oldest boys. Solomon was down the line. Um, he, we don't know exactly where he fit in next, but um, it could have been as number 10 or as high as number 6. Um, but Solomon is definitely younger than Adonijah. And so Adonijah has been sitting in the background, not really happy that the throne is going to his little brother. He feels that by birthright it belongs to him. And so he's been biding his time, waiting for the time where he can take the throne. David's made it known, it is public, that the will of the king is that Solomon be the next king. You can't change your will after you die, as we all know. And so Adonijah can't wait until after David dies to take the throne. He needs to take the throne while David's alive so that everybody would assume that David has given the throne to his son. So he's waiting, has been waiting, until his dad is too weak to oppose him. There was another brother, Absalom, who tried to take the throne while David was still strong. And that son, Absalom, underestimated his father's strength, and he ended up losing his life. So Adonai, just looking for a window of opportunity when dad is not dead, But dad is too weak to oppose the taking of the throne. And when Adonijah hears that David did not sleep with Abishag, the most beautiful woman in all the country, Adonijah comes to the conclusion, it's not because dad wouldn't, it's because dad couldn't. And now that means dad is so weak that he can't keep me from taking the throne. In addition, Adonijah has gotten the two most powerful men in the nation to back him. Joab, the commander of the army, and Abathar, the priest. And so how can he lose? Dad's weak, commander of the army is behind him, and Abathar, the priest, also supports him. So it looks as though he has everything going for him, and this is a conspiracy that is not going to be overthrown. So it starts out and says that Adonijah exalted himself, and already big red flags should go up. He exalted himself? Is that how David became king? By exalting himself? No. David was a forgotten son, literally, taking care of the sheep. And even the dad could not believe that the youngest, the runt, would be the king of Israel. Did Saul exalt himself to be king? Saul was hiding in the baggage when they came to make him king. So the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, had no ambitions to be king. Did not want to be king. Reluctant leaders. Humble men when they started. And now we have a man who is exalting himself to be king. Well, what's so bad about that? Everything. Self-exaltation. is the the character of the devil himself. Ezekiel 28, speaking of Satan, Lucifer, God says that your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. And then in Isaiah 14, 13 and following, God is giving us the narrative of what was going on in Satan's heart, Lucifer's heart. And God said, but you said in your heart... I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Wow. Five I wills. That's pretty scary. Not only is Self-exaltation, the character of Satan. We shouldn't be surprised that it's also the character of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul says, "...who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God." Wow. There's an old far side cartoon where two deer two deer are talking to each other, and the one deer says to the other one, Boy Hal, it's a bummer of a birthmark. And Hal's got a big bullseye birthmark on his chest. (laughs) And so I, I always think about that when I think of the verse that says, Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. No sure way to make yourself the target of God than to exalt yourself, promote yourself. And you might as well just be drawing a bullseye on your chest and saying, shoot me. You will be humbled. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud. But the promise of God Is the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. Exalt yourself, you will be humbled, but humble yourself and God will exalt you. The attitude, the character of Jesus, polar opposite of self exaltation. We know this from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no hint of self-exaltation, self-promotion in Jesus. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Adonijah, exalting himself to be king. He was plotting. He was scheming. Something that I often ask girls if that's what they're doing when I see them huddled and talking. Are you plotting and scheming? He is partnering with others for influence. He is forming alliances and friendships that advance him. He's putting confidence in who he knows. And he's hiding his true intentions. All of those are marks of a person who is seeking to exalt himself. Scary, scary stuff. He is one self-willed man. How did he become this way? Well, we know theologically this is how we all are born. That movie that came out years ago, Finding Nemo, and what, what do those seagulls all say? Mine, 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 mine. It's in all of us. Just go back and help in the nursery, and you'll see it. It's in all of us. And Adam and I just going, to the throne is mine, 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 mine. Exalting himself to be king, not content with the station in life that God has given him. When I can't live within the boundaries that God has established, it is pride. But there are three things that certainly didn't help him not be a self-willed man. Three things in Adonijah's life that just reinforced the self-will spirit of self-exaltation. Verse 6. First thing, his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? Can you imagine? I can't. (laughs) That's my dad chuckling there. And I could tell you some stories. Wow. We, many times, were crossed. And it was much more than just, why have you done so? Do you want to live is <laughs> more like it. I remember teasing and saying that my dad taught us to say yes, sir, no, sir. And if we said, huh, that he would respond with, sure, I'll spank you. <laughs> going, well, well, I thought you were asking for a whipping. That's what we called him back in the day, whippings, because that's what they were. And he never did said that, but I knew that you might as well have been asking for a whipping as to respond with, huh, instead of, yes, sir, no, sir. That was good. A kid needs to learn, every child needs to learn he is not God, that he is under, and he is not the most important force in the universe, in the universe of the family, he is not first. And this is a role that both mom and dads have to be on the same page about. Children need to know they are not first in the home. And this is mom's day. Moms, this comes on you. Because it's so, you are so tempted to make your children first. They are not Your husband's first. And husbands, your wife is first. And the kids need to know that. And they are more likely to be secure and well-behaved and know that they are loved when they know they are not the center of the home. They are not the center of their world. They come somewhere down. It's a good thing for a child to know he is not first. When my older brother married. Um, He married a Scottish girl. And after the wedding, we had a reception. I guess it was a rehearsal reception. And we were back in his future father-in-law's home. And um, the father-in-law, future father-in-law made the announcement. And he says, "Um, the adults will go through first to be served and the children will go last. I was um, 20 years old and I was the best man in the wedding. I did not consider myself a child. And so when he said the adults can go first, I got in line with the adults. And this stately Scottish gentleman came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, the children will go last. (laughs) And I said, I know. (laughs) And he had to tell me again, (laughs) the children will go last. Okay, I guess you're talking to me. Not a bad thing. That same man, he came here, and he was visiting uh, in our home here in Burnie, and um, he was telling his story, and he said that when he got out of university, he took a job as a, an assistant bookkeeper at a steel mill in, um, in Scotland. And by the time he retired, he was in charge. He was the top man of the entire steel industry for the United Kingdom. And he said this, My first job was the only job I ever applied for. And he never promoted himself. He never exalted himself. He lived a humble, quiet, godly life, and God exalted him. He did not promote himself, and he, said, and, if, and he just said it to the praise of God. He says, I never applied for a job. I never even sought a job. God promoted me. Amazing. That was not Adonijah. Every fall, Torchbearers had a, a board meeting out in California, Fallbrook, California. I was expected to be there even though I was not on the board and, um, and I would stay typically in the home of an old friend. He had children my age, five kids, four girls, one boy, and I, I knew all of his children, and I really respected this, this man, the patriarch of the family. He had taught at his hill. I'd known him for many years. And so when um, I was married and we were having children, he took special interest in us because he was invested in our lives. And I would stay in his home, and, and I'll never re- forget one time. I think it must have happened more than once, because usually things have to happen more than once for me to remember them. But I was sitting in his home, and this great big man, large man, 6'6", you know, 280 pounds or something, b- deep voice. And he's going, Charlie, what's the most important thing for you and Patsy to teach those kids? Well, that's easy. Love Jesus. no. Not, how can, I thought Jesus was always the right answer? No. No. Okay, man. Now I'm really, you know, and I and I I, I, I don't, you know, be kind to one another. No. <laughs> Receive Christ. No. And I'm just going. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a loser, Dad. And he goes, teach them to obey. He goes, that is the. Charge of God for every parent, whether they know God or not. God's one will for every parent is they teach their children to obey. And I'm going, and I know his five kids. They're wonderful, good people. And they all love God. And I know this man loved his family and he loves his grandchildren. He's a teddy bear of a guy as big as he was. But he was authoritarian as well. And he told me this. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Think about the connection, Charlie. If you do not teach your children to obey, they will never be able to love God or love anybody else. Because the demonstration of love is obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you cripple everything in a child's life. If you let a child just run wild, if you let a child just find his own way, just discover his own bents, his own directions, you hurt that child. David, I'm sorry, Solomon will say in, in Proverbs 13, 24, the father who disciplines his child loves him. And the father who withholds discipline hates him. Solomon must have been thinking of his own dad as he wrote those words. Because Adonijah was a boy who had never been disciplined. Not once. When you grow up like that, how can you love? When you have never learned to yield your will to another. Because that's what love is. Love is saying, life's not about me, and I am willing to give my life for another. I have to be able to learn to say no to self, to love another person, or I am loving them selfishly, and that's not love. When our oldest son was not even able to walk yet, so he was nine, ten months old, he pulled himself up to my mom's coffee table And I'm sitting across on the other side of the coffee table on the couch. She had these brass ducks lined up on the coffee table. Ten-month-old boy, he wanted those ducks. And he pulls up to the coffee table, and he reaches out to grab those ducks. And I said, Nathan? And he looked at me. He smiled. And I said, no. And I know he knows his name. And I know he knows what no means. And I said, no. And he just smiled, kept his eyes fixed on me, and kept reaching for those ducks. (laughs) Little rascal. (laughs) And I swatted his little hand. (laughs) Lips quivering (laughs) a lot more. You mean I'm not God? (laughs) I, I don't just do whatever, I can't do everything I want? No. It begins when they're so young. Came out in the garage one time, and my sweet little girl, maybe three years old, somehow she'd popped the lid off the paint can, and she'd gotten a three and a half inch paintbrush, and I looked at our gray minivan, and there was this beautiful white stripe from bumper to bumper, and she's holding that paintbrush in her hand, and I'm just going, oh my, and I've. Fortunately, it was water-based paint, and I was able to get it all off as quick as I could, and then I thought, there's two sides to a car. And I ran around to the other side, another. Stri- I had racing stripes going down both sides of that man, They were beautiful stripes, and she didn't mean harm. But I didn't say, you know, here's a roller. <laughs> you will know, finish the job. I said, sweetheart, you can't do this. And I gave her a bucket of empty, I gave her a bucket of water and a fresh paint brush, and I said, you can paint your heart's tent with heart's content with this water. But kids have to be brought in, reined in. We were talking to a missionary couple, and they were speaking of children from another culture that they were very familiar with, and they'd taken this family out to a restaurant here in the States. And the child was so unruly that he was literally on the restaurant table, running back and forth on the table. And the manager had to come over and say, get the child under under control or please leave. There are cultures that just think children should just be allowed to have their way. And again, God's word says, the father who doesn't discipline his child hates him. That child will not grow up knowing how to love. He will not grow up learning how to curb his own instincts, his own drives for the betterment of other people. It's the worst thing we could do to our children. We had a camp counselor one summer. I'd known him since he was eight years old. And at 18, 19 years old, he was a counselor with us. Great, big, muscular guy. His dad had walked out on them when he was a boy. And so he'd really never had a father's loving discipline. I heard, I think it was Chuck Swindoll, just say recently on the radio that the family is the place where a child is supposed to learn to be governed. And if the family doesn't do its job, society will have to. And it won't look pretty. So this boy that was working with us, young man, he went out and got drunk. Well, we've got pretty strict policies about that at his hill. And so I told him, I said, the only way that you can possibly even stay here, and I'm not going to let you be a counselor for a period of time, but even to stay on our property, the only way is you're going to have to acknowledge what you've done before the rest of the staff and ask for their forgiveness. Because what you've done reflects on all of us. That's the way life is. He was so mad. I thought he was going to hit me. Just bowed up. And I stopped and I said, um, I love you. And I've known you since you were eight years old. And the reason I'm making you do this is because it is for your best. And he just started bawling. Just that quick, he turned and just threw himself across me and sobbed across my neck and said, thank you, thank you for loving me enough to make it hurt. Because he never had a dad to do that. And we went into our chapel where everybody was, and um, he had to humble himself. He told everybody what he had done and said, please forgive me. And you can imagine the response. He was so fully forgiven and we could move forward. But without the discipline, it would not have been redemptive. We are not treating people with respect when we act as though there are no consequences for sinful behavior. in addition to being without discipline his whole life, which is beyond comprehension. But it also says that he was, got back to verse 6, that he was a very handsome man. I had an older brother that was very handsome, four and a half years older than, than me, and twice, I remember going into men's clothing stores with him and the manager coming out and offering him a job on the spot. That never happened to me. (laughs) And I'm going, I'd like to work here. (laughs) It was amazing. He was one of those guys that could walk into a room and every head would turn, men and women both. I met a woman one time who was in her 40s. And she grew up um, in Corpus near where we did, and as we got to just you know, we all oh, we both grew up in Corpus. Oh, we, oh, you live there. Oh, and then she goes, "Did you have a brother named Steve?" And I go, "Yeah." And this woman in her 40s starts to get giggly. Oh, <laughs> I knew your brother, and I'm going unbelievable. <laughs> Nobody has ever done that with me. I'm sure of it. So I know from observation, not from experience, that good-looking people, life goes better for them. Doors open. Things are just, you know, experiments have actually been done on this. I read one where they, they took a beautiful woman and stood her on a busy street corner in New York City, loaded her arms full of, of packages and said, when the, when cross, go out the, and just cross the street when it's time to cross and drop your packages as you start to walk. And she did and dropped her packages and people come from everywhere to help her. Took the same woman and dressed her up to make her look ugly. Put her on the same street corner with the same packages and said, walk out and drop packages. In that time, she only had two or three people help her. And it was just a little experiment to show that life goes easier for beautiful people. And certainly for Adonijah, never having been disciplined, and he's extremely good looking, so people would have just been drawn to him and given him attention and adulation just because of how he looked. You know what that does? That breeds insecurity. Why? Because I've never been disciplined, so there's, so I, so there's no confidence, there, there's no core to me. And people are fawning on me, giving me attention, opening doors for me, and it's because of how I look. It's not because of who I am, it's not because of anything I've accomplished, it's not because of my values, my beliefs, but because of how I look. That just breeds insecurity. And it's insecure people who are going to be most apt to exalt themselves and promote themselves. Not only was he extremely good looking, but he, was actually, but he was also born after Absalom. In terms of the world, this man has everything going for him. He is the king's oldest son. He is extremely handsome. And he can do whatever he wants, and he gets away with it. In the world's economy, that is the man you would want to be because you've got life by the tail. But it's not what God wanted. This man is rich in self and he is bankrupt toward God. It's tragic. If you'd ask this man, is there anything about your life that you would change? I think he'd probably say, what are you talking about? (laughs) The only thing that I would change is that I can be king. And I've got that in control. That's going to happen. My good-looking older brother got leukemia. Went into remission shortly after they found the leukemia, even though they'd only given him six weeks to live. And God kept him in remission for a couple of years. And then he got married. And the leukemia came back just within a a few months of being married. And he started taking the chemotherapy again. The first time he took the chemo, nothing happened, literally. He actually got healthier. I've never heard of that happening. Instead of losing weight, he gained 20 pounds and he needed it because he was way too thin. Instead of his hair falling out, his hair got thicker and he never once threw up. The doctors couldn't understand it. So he quit taking the chemo. He started just flushing it down the toilet. His bone marrow was healthier than the doctor's bone marrow at one point, the doctor told him. But then after getting married, the Lord allowed the leukemia to come back and he started taking the chemo and it did everything it had done that it was supposed to do, wretchedly sick, lost all kinds of weight, and his hair was just falling out in big clumps. And so he went to the barber and had his head shaved. And that was back in the day when nobody did that because they thought it looked cool. And obviously, he was very, very, very ill. And when he came home, he, he just looked awful. I was the first one to see him and I just tried to be lighthearted about it and I called him Kojak. Um, Well, that that didn't lift his spirits. And then his young bride, only been married just a couple months, three months maybe, um, she came around the corner through the kitchen and saw him and with no hesitation, she just hugged him and he just cried. And and he, And she knew what he was thinking, and she said, "I never married you for how you looked." Wow. And I'm sitting there just feeling like I shouldn't even be witnessing this. All that to say, that my brother, before he passed away, and he died in, in a January, in December at Christmas time he was between in and out of the hospital, and he was at home at Christmas. And, and um, we were sitting there in my parents' living room, and we got to talking about the tribulation. And I just said, man, I, I, you know, remember, I'm 20 years old. And I said, I really hope that we don't have to go through the tribulation. And my brother, who used to be the meanest guy I knew, and he was far away from God before the leukemia came. And he looks at me and says, If the tribulation could teach me the love of Jesus, like leukemia has, I would gladly go through it. And I'm thinking, Who is this person? So my brother came to a place when he said, Leukemia is the greatest thing God has ever allowed to happen in my life. And it was because it made him so desperate for Jesus. I often tell the students when I teach on this passage, I have no doubt that if you were to take a piece of paper and I were to ask you to write down the one thing that you would ask God to remove from your life, that you could quickly think of the one thing that you wish that God could remove from your life. But here's the deal. That one thing is your greatest asset. Because what you consider your greatest liability is probably the one thing that God is using most to cause you to see your desperate need for him. This is what Jesus was saying to Paul when Paul asked that the thorn in his flesh be removed. And Jesus said to him, stop praying about it. I am not going to remove it. 2 Corinthians 12. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is there something in your life that causes you to see that you are desperate for Jesus? Consider it a gift from God. Anonijah had nothing in his life like that. No wonder he was a self-exalting man. What could David have done? All the fault is not on David. Not all, all the blame is not on him. First chapter of Isaiah says, God says, My children do not follow after my ways. My children do not obey me. Even God's children are disobedient. And it is not unusual to find godly parents with children who do not walk with God. It's important that we all accept the discipline that God brings into our lives. It's important for a father or for a mother to discipline their children in love. But it's important for us to also understand that though I can discipline my child, I can tell him he needs to obey. I cannot create an obedient heart in the life of my child any more than I can create it in my own One of the grandmothers here one time a few years ago um, said, you know, sometimes when I'm watching my granddaughter, I have to spank her. And then she got a twinkle in her eye and leaned over and said, and I kinda like it. <laughs> That's great. We had our, one of our daughters-in-law and her children with us not long ago. And some of the kids, one of the kids t- came to me and said, Pop, mom needs you. And so I went and she said, I need your help with one of the boys. And she told me what had happened and it was big. And so I had talked to him. He was lying on his bed, ready for, had his pajamas on, ready for bed, and he was not a happy camper. And so, um, I had to hold his face because he wouldn't want to look at me. And I said, I have permission to spank you. And you have never been spanked by me. And you do not want to be spanked by me. And I told him, I said, I love you. But I cannot change your heart. All I can do is discipline you. But only Jesus can change your heart. Now, I can discipline you until you cry out to Jesus, (laughs) but I can't make you cry out to Jesus. Every parent needs to realize that the task that we are called to, and then going back to the story of that friend of mine, he said, Charlie, every child comes into this world a barbarian. And that's why it is the one job of every parent to civilize their children. Whether you're a Christian or not, that is the one job God has given you, civilize the barbarians. But I cannot, maybe I can make them civil, but I cannot make them obedient from the heart. That is something that only God can do. Obedience is a miracle. Paul said in Romans 15:18, "I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed." Now, when I read that, I think of a man who has performed countless miracles. He's even seen the dead raised. And yet Paul says, when I look over my life, he says, I am not going to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And then he mentions one thing. And that makes me think it's the greatest of all the things. And that being that obedience, that Gentiles have been made obedient in word and deed through faith in Christ. That is the miracle. It may be the greatest miracle. Let me explain. Jesus said that after He would leave and ascend and send the Holy Spirit, He says, greater works than I do, you shall do. Greater works. I'm not walking on water yet, and I've got no hope to. And I think that's a pretty great one, walking on water. I've never fed 5,000 from a boy's lunch. And that's a pretty big miracle. The greatest miracle is salvation. Not raising the dead. Not walking on water. Not feeding thousands from one lunch. It's the miracle of salvation. Seeing a person move from spiritual death to spiritual life. Is a miracle. It is an act of God. Well, Jesus did that. How can it be a greater miracle for us to do the very thing that Jesus did? Here's my thinking on this, and I may be totally wrong. When I, I've only seen pictures of, the, of Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel. I would love to see it in person someday. But just the pictures I've seen, and I'm going, that is amazing. But see, if Jesus were to do that, I would say that's amazing, but I wouldn't say it's miraculous. But if Jesus could make me do it, that would be a miracle. Because I don't even make recognizable stick figures. I was trying to draw a birthday cake for Scarlett the other day, my two-year-old granddaughter. And Patsy walked by and says, wow, did Scarlett draw that? And I go, oh, that's, that's, how, that's how bad my artwork is. So if I drew Michelangelo's picture there, that, what he drew on the Sistine Chapel, if I drew that, you'd go, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. But here's the thing. If I could do that and also teach you to do that, it would be even a greater miracle. It's a miracle on top of a miracle. And it's one thing that Jesus the sinless one brings life to others. That's a miracle. But when Jesus brings life to us and we were disobedient, that we were sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 describes us, and then he uses us to bring life to another, that's a miracle on top of a miracle. And so I kind of think that when God uses one of us To see a person place his faith in Christ, that is a greater miracle than if Jesus did it without us. It's amazing. It is a miracle on top of a miracle. And I have to understand that for God, for my child to become obedient from the heart, it is a supernatural spiritual work that only God can accomplish. And that is what God is after. I appreciated that the ladies in the church um, want to pray to that end. Because that's exactly what it takes. Willing parents to civilize the barbarians, but they cannot do it on their own. They cannot do it on their own. It takes the spirit of God. God. David had one son that wanted to murder him and another son that couldn't wait for him to die. It all started because of a failure to yield every aspect of his life to God. And then the failure to discipline a son. And what does that add up to? Unyielded life, failure to discipline your children, it adds up to tremendous personal heartache heartache, and multiplied tragedy for life after life for generations to come. We have been so blessed. We are children of the greatest king, the king of kings. And he loves us with all of his being. We may not be beautiful in the eyes of the world, but we are beautiful in his eyes. And he disciplines us. If we are without discipline, we are not his children, Hebrews says. I pray that not only would we as parents and grandparents lovingly discipline our children, Because it is the loving thing to do. But that we would also recognize that only God can make them obedient. And in all of our discipline, we would orient them to Jesus. Not to the consequences of their actions alone, but to Jesus and their need for him. But that we would also be the same. Because what child at some time doesn't think, well, I have to do what you say, but who makes you do anything? Because that's how it appears to children. That we adults don't have any authority. And sometimes we act like we don't. But may we be the ones that model to our children that we are not without authority. And our authority is the King of Kings. And He is in the business of disciplining us just as we are called to discipline our children. I'll close us in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are more than sufficient um, for this life and for the calling and responsibilities that you've given us. We've all, Lord, that have children have made mistakes. None of us have raised our children perfectly. We all have things that we wish we'd never said, never done. But we, God, in that we recognize that it has to be your work. We thank you that you use fallible people who are ignorant and sinful and make mistakes and that you can still accomplish your purposes. But I pray that we would walk humbly with you, that we would bow our heads before you, God, and our hearts that we would be yielded to you, giving our amen, which is to say yes, sir, no, sir, to the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and respect. We thank you that we've been saved from disobedience, that we might be made obedient through the working of your spirit. And this is to your glory, God. It's not our willful wish to be obedient, but only through faith in Christ can that be accomplished. I thank you, God, for each of the children in our lives and in this church. And we do earnestly, oh God, pray that they would all at the earliest age possible understand their deep need of you, your love for them, and that they would yield themselves to you in faith, receiving Jesus and the gift of eternal life. Use us, God, to point them to you. And I pray that in their lives, as they look at us, their parents and us as this body, they would see a people who are obedient to Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.